0: Good morning. First, I would like to give a quick announcement in uh, kind of a prelude to Stephen's end of service announcement. Uh, we need your help. I need you to listen to the directions that Stephen gives at the end of the service and do exactly as he's asked you to do, not only to serve our ushers who work very hard to thank you, ushers and greeters. We know that we're not always easy on you so that we might easily and quickly dismiss. Uh, we just want to make sure that we're clear there. Uh, we know that We ourselves are sometimes inconsistent in how we're talking about it. And we want to thank you. You are doing so many things that are often difficult. Uh, Wearing masks, sitting in seats, walking in ways where there are arrows. We need your help at the end of the service now. So when Stephen comes up and gives directions, just in those moments, kind of think of him like an air flight attendant that you're actually listening to. So if you've ever flown, I know all of you, if you're like me, you just read your book while they're talking. All right, second, if uh, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along with me in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, you can look underneath the seat near you. There should be one there. If you do not have a Bible, you can call your own. Please feel free to take one of those. We would love to give you a copy of God's word that you can study as you continue to learn more about who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he died on the cross. If you're a guest with us, we're actually in the midst of a series of sermons studying the gospel according to Mark, and today I confess that I have no illustration that can help us as we approach this hallowed text, because nothing we have ever experienced has been or can be analogous to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. His suffering is unique. You do not have a Gethsemane in your life. You, thank God, if you are a believer, will never face any pressure like Jesus faced here in the garden. So as we prepare to receive the word in just a few moments, I can do no better than Charles Haddon Spurgeon did on Sunday, October 18, 1874, And preparing you for this passage. We have thus come to the gate of the garden of Gethsemane. Let us now enter. But first, let us put off our shoe from our foot, as Moses did when he also saw the bush which burned with fire and was not consumed. Surely we may say with Jacob, How dreadful is this place! I tremble at the task which lies before me, For how shall my feeble speech describe those agonies for which strong crying and tears were scarcely an adequate expression? I desire with you to survey the sufferings of our Redeemer. But, oh, may the Spirit of God prevent our mind from thinking amiss or our tongue from speaking even one word which would be derogatory to Him, either in His immaculate manhood or His glorious Godhead. It is not easy when you are speaking of one who is both God and man to observe the exact line of correct speech. It is so easy to describe the divine side in such a manner as to trench upon the human, or to depict the human at cost to the divine. Make me not an offender for a word if I should err. A man had need himself to be inspired or to confine himself to the very words of inspiration fitly to speak at all times upon this great mystery of godliness god manifest in the flesh and especially when he has to dwell most upon god so manifest in suffering flesh that the weakest traits in manhood become the most conspicuous O lord open my lips that my tongue may utter right words. Friends, I desire to survey the sufferings of the Redeemer with you today. Let us do so prayerfully as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 14. Let's look at verse 32. Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and speaks to us with the same authorities as if Jesus himself were here speaking to us. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. These verses are all too familiar and incredibly mysterious. The sufferings of the Son of God for his people are deep we ask that you would, by your Spirit, help us to understand so that we might grow in conformity with Christ. So that we might more greatly appreciate his work of redemption for us. So that, Father, those among us who are not believers might be born again by the Spirit of God. Father, we ask that you would help us today to focus our minds on your word. We know that the enemy prowls around seeking to snatch the good word from us. We ask that you would help us to focus. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in the Word of God. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Christ. Amen. Our text is familiar, so our outline is very simple this morning. Two points with 8 subpoints between them. Point one, the shepherd prays. And the sheep sleep. The shepherd prays and the sheep sleep. Point two, the shepherd is betrayed, and the sheep flee. The shepherd is betrayed and the sheep flee. And for all of our note takers who heard eight subpoints, I will let you know when we have transitioned from point one to point two so that you can keep up with the subpoints. They are not evenly balanced. And I say that up front because I trust that even though they are not evenly balanced, all of the observations that we can make from this text and more are relevant to our lives. Notice first where Jesus went. We're under point one. Notice first where Jesus went. Look again at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Supper is over and Jesus is done instructing his apostles. And the scene shifts dramatically in Mark's gospel from the upper room to a garden just outside of Jerusalem. After verse 26, singing a hymn, Jesus and his disciples would have walked through the streets of the city in the stillness of the night, and in the soft light of the paschal moon, they would have crossed the Kidron Valley, climbed up the Mount of Olives before turning off into an olive orchard, as its name, Gethsemane, suggests, which means oil press one of Jesus' favorite places to visit with his disciples, we see in one of the other Gospels. And here something takes place that despite the sober way Mark the Evangelist describes it, it simply cries out for explanation as the agony of the garden is recounted. Here in this garden, Jesus will be pressed. Here in this garden, Jesus will resolve to go to Calvary. Here in this garden, Jesus will show that he is determined to go all the way to the cross. Gethsemane interprets Calvary. Gethsemane prepares us for Calvary. Here in this garden, Gethsemane, Jesus will begin events that will reverse what happened in another garden, Eden. What induced him to select that place to be the scene of his terrible agony? Why there... In preference to anywhere else, would he be arrested by his enemies, Spurgeon asked. His answer, may we not conceive that as in a garden, Adam's self-indulgence ruined us. So in another garden, the agonies of the second Adam should be restored us. Gethsemane supplies the medicine for the ills which followed upon the forbidden fruit of Eden. Friends, Jesus did not wish to conceal himself. If he had, he would have never gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a place that is well known. He went boldly to the place that his enemies knew that he would be, where he was accustomed to pray because he was willing to be taken to suffering and death. He went to Gethsemane for us. He went to Gethsemane for us and for our salvation. The founder of our salvation went to Gethsemane to make us reconciled to God. Friends, if you are not a Christian, you might not know what the Bible teaches about you. The Bible says that you need to be reconciled to God by repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross. You need to be reconciled to God because you are a sinner. You are a sinner by birth and a sinner by choice. A sinner by birth, we are all born with sin and guilt. From the most innocent child to the most wretched looking child. All children everywhere, no matter what they're born with, are all born with sin and guilt. You are a sinner by choice. You choose sin every day of your lives because you love sin more than you love God. The Bible tells us that our sin has radically separated us from God. He is holy, we are unholy. He is righteous, we are unrighteous. He is good, we're not merely bad, we are wicked, totally depraved, rotten to the core. He dwells in the heavens and we are heading to hell apart from his merciful intervention in our lives. But God, being rich in mercy, sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, Jesus, to live the life that we could never live. Holy, righteous, sinless. To die the death that we all deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. That is what your sin earns for you, death. So that we might have fellowship not only with one another, but with God. If we would repent of our sins, confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. God did that that way Because that is the only way for men and women to be reconciled to God. There is no other salvation. It does not matter what the world says as they give you other opportunities. There is only one way for us to know God. This is why the Bible, the gospel, this gospel, all four gospels, are very adamant to communicate to us that Jesus voluntarily went to Gethsemane. Jesus had no intention of being hunted down like a robber or a criminal or a thief. He willingly and voluntarily went there because he was on his way to the cross so that he might bring his people back to God. Non-Christian, Jesus will reconcile you to God today if you will confess your sins Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only question confronting you right now is, will you confess your sin? Will you ask God to forgive you of your sin? You can do that right now here in the midst of a service of corporate worship. You can ask God to forgive you. And the Bible assures us that the eternal, unchanging, omnipotent, immutable God will forgive you of your sins if you confess your sins. He is merciful. He will do it every time we come to him in genuine repentance. Believers struggling with sin, thinking, I've sinned myself out of the grace of God. No, you haven't, and no, you can't. He has promised that if we confess our sins, he will forgive us of our sins. This is why he went to Calvary. But this, more importantly, is why he went to Gethsemane. If you're confused today, and you have no idea what I'm talking about or what we're studying right now, And you don't have any idea what I mean by this salvation. That is exactly why God has placed us here. And we would love to speak with you. It is our privilege to open the Bible with people who are believers, but people who are not believers. And to show them the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We would love to share the truth of Jesus Christ with you. I'm going to be standing in the courtyard after the service. Come speak with me. And I would love to introduce you to somebody who opened the Bible with you. If you're a man, I'll introduce you to another man. If you're a woman, I'll introduce you to another woman. They would love to patiently answer your questions. It is not a burden to us. It is why we are here. Christian, Jesus went to the garden to reconcile you to God. You are valuable to God. By faith in Jesus Christ, You are sons of God and daughters of God, and you will never face Gethsemane. God loves you. Notice second, who Jesus took. Look at verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John, leaving most of the apostles behind. They've all come down with him up here into Gethsemane leaving them behind and urging them to, verse 32, sit here while I pray, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the intimate three, just a stone's throw farther into the garden, and to this olive press here as he speaks to them. The significance of this moment is indicated by Jesus taking his inner circle of people with him. He takes them with him as he goes to pray. The very same three that he took with him on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. These are the same three that Jesus takes with him into the depths of the garden. But what is astonishing is that the same three saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured before them on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are the same three who failed him in Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, we need new morning mercies every day. We cannot rely on past experience for faithfulness in our present lives because none of us have ever had any experiences, anything like the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fellow believers, just a few questions for you. Are you striving for faithfulness right now? Not have you striven for faithfulness in the past? Not do you intend to strive for faithfulness in the future? But are you striving for faithfulness right now? Trying to put sin to death. Trying to know God more. Trying to walk in victory. Trying to be a person who is godly. Not merely being thought of as godly, but one who is actually godly. Are you reading God's word now? Not have you read God's word? Or will you read God's word? Or do you have a plan to read God's word? Or do you talk to people who read God's word? But are you a person who is immersing your mind and your imagination in the holy word of God? Are you regularly in dependent prayer? For those of you who are change agents in the room, who are busy bodies and need to move and need action, do you stop? not do, and regularly pray because you recognize that only God is capable of bringing the change that you long for and have desired in the lives of those whom you love? Are you laboring to walk in the power of the Spirit day by day? Not are you aware that you have the indwelling Spirit, but are you trying to walk in the power of the Spirit? Not have you been sealed for redemption, but are you asking God to fill you with his Spirit so that you might have greater victory over sin, so that you might speak words that are kind and gracious and godly, so that you might use your life for the stewardship of the kingdom? Are you actively pursuing Christ? or are you pointing to past experiences when confronted with present unfaithfulness oh well, there was a great time i went to camp i remember the day on that day that bible reading was unlike any day or are you laboring right now god i need you afresh every day and brothers and sisters if you're honest in this room if your life is like mine we need to meet god daily I am regularly confronted with my sin, my inadequacies. I don't just need past morning mercies. I need new morning mercies every day. Or I will fail as your pastor. I will fail as a husband to my wife. I will fail as a father. I will fail as a Christian. Apart from God's sustaining and active grace in my life, there would be no Raymond Johnson. I am always a few minutes away from destroying the entirety of my life. We need God's new morning mercies every day. This same Peter, James, and John did not enter the garden thinking, I will deny Jesus. Just look up at verse 31 or back or wherever it is in your Bible. But Peter said to him emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the others said the same. There is no way Peter walked into that garden thinking, I'm denying Jesus today. They understood their past as both a privilege. We're the inner three. You're the Christ. We desire to sit at your right hand and at your left. And they certainly didn't leave the other nine behind thinking to themselves. Well, we're insignificant and we're going to be the ones who fail Jesus. Jesus was probably talking about the other nine. Their actions recorded in this very gospel testify otherwise. Quick to speak, slow to listen as they presented themselves for opportunities that they thought themselves worthy of. Yet Jesus takes them with them nonetheless. Patient teacher that he is. As he brings them to the very end of their dependence on self, so that they might wake up tomorrow aware of their own brokenness, and forever dependent upon him. Brothers and sisters, may we be people who walk with a limp, who are very aware of our own brokenness in our lives. People who are very aware of our desperate need for God to sustain us. Because only then are we actually able to be restored to meaningful service in the kingdom. These same people who deny Jesus become mightily used by this same Jesus. Notice third, how Jesus felt. Look at verse 33 again, the end of the verse. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Mark describes Jesus' agony with shocking boldness here in his gospel. So bold, so descriptive, that our English gloss fails to capture the terror in his use of ekthem ba'omai for greatly distressed. Which means horror struck, or as B.B. Warfield defined in his famous essay on the emotional life of our Lord, if not exactly dread, alarmed dismay. Even the word troubled fails to communicate. The idea is of a loathing aversion, perhaps not unmixed with despondency. But we don't only have Mark's description in our text today, do we? We actually have Jesus' self-description to his inner circle, Peter, James, and John in verse 34. Notice what he says. My soul is very sorrowful, Even to death. Overwhelmed by sorrow or perhaps we would better say a mental anguish and pain. A distress which hems him in on every side. From which there is no escape. An anguish of the sort that only death can be thought of. Only death can be thought of as the viable end option for him. Put together Mark's description in verse 33. And Jesus' self-description in verse 34. Help us see... Jesus' state prior to the cross. Put together Mark's description in verse 33 and Jesus' self-description in verse 34. Help us see the emotional life of our Lord. Put together Mark's description in verse 33 and Jesus' self-description in verse 34. Help us see that Jesus felt. He's not cold and unfeeling after all, is he? Friends, when we read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, there are times when we are confronted with the radical nature of what Jesus says to us. And when confronted with it, we think, how could he be so monstrous in his words? So direct and unconcerned about what's happened in my life. I'm to forgive no matter what people are, have done to me, I'm to repent. And there's no justification, no matter how people have treated me. And often we think of Jesus as unfeeling, unfazed, stoic in his life. Mark helps us see that Jesus felt. He is absolutely distraught. Jesus is overrun by his own emotions. Friends, in these sacred moments that we are reading about this morning, we see that our Lord felt the ultimate depths of human anguish. From consternation to a debilitating anxiety. He literally throws himself onto the ground. From disappointment to dismay. From despondency to despair. From loneliness to absolute hopelessness. From heartbreak to misery. We see the distress of Jesus' soul as he agonizes in the Gospels. His closest friends are walking away from him. One of his own hand selected is going to betray him. He's praying to the father for another way and his father will not answer the prayer the way that he wants it. He is in great pain. He himself tells us that it is so awful in the garden, verse 34, that he felt that he could not live. That life was not worth living. That there was no other solution But death, have you ever been there where death felt like the only viable way out? Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Brothers and sisters, that is why he is an all-sufficient Savior. He understands your groanings and your longings. And your inarticulate prayers, your brokenness, and your despair, your sadness, and your grief. Jesus knows exactly what it is like to be there. He is not cold and unfeeling. He has felt it all and he has gone further down that road than any of us have ever traveled. He has gone further down that road than we are capable of traveling. And he never sinned against God. He never turned back. He never wavered. He never in any moment capitulated. Jesus in every way knows exactly what it is like to be you. How you felt, how you've been treated, how you've been betrayed, how you've been denied, how you've been left alone, and how you have thought that the only way out of this life is death itself. And he can hear your prayers so empathetically because of it. So compassionately because of it. That is the type of Savior that I want. When reflecting on this passage, one of you emailed me the following this week. Just read through the passage for Sunday this morning. and What sticks out most to me is that Jesus is Jesus' emotions in verses 32 through 34. I've been thinking a lot recently about the emotions of Jesus. And I just noticed how Jesus is described as distressed, troubled, and sorrowful. This is the Son of God, and he too experienced such turmoil in his soul. He felt those emotions went to the point of asking God, His Father, to miraculously change the course of events, yet also had every intention of following God's will, no matter the outcome. I'm encouraged. Knowing Jesus was without sin, and also felt such deep and strong emotions that I often see as bad in me because they're unpleasant. It's easy for me to feel... That I'm wrong for feeling those emotions. But emotions just are. Emotions are not inherently sinful. We can take them to Jesus knowing that he has truly been there himself. And did not sin. He knows our pain. And will carry us through. He will meet you right where you are. Right in the midst of your brokenness. And will bring comfort to your soul because he has suffered every bit as much as you have and more because he is a good and all-sufficient Savior. He experienced the whole range of human emotions. He was so happy they thought he was a drunkard. And he was so grieved in this moment people thought him to be a coward. Jesus knew exactly what it meant to be human and lived for us. Gethsemane, more than any other scene in the Gospels, helps us see that Jesus was a real human. That he felt painful emotions. And as a result, never in the Gospels does the humanity of Jesus shine through more clearly and more brilliantly for us. As the narrative focuses on his sufferings, these very real sufferings in the garden... Jesus Jesus wasn't there with the three thinking, I don't feel anything, I'm going to get through this just fine, but I need to show them what they need to do when I'm gone. Jesus is in absolute turmoil. What's the reason for his agony? Why is Jesus in such anguish? It is not merely the fact that he knows he's soon to be killed. I think the key is in verse 36, where he prays for the cup to be taken from him. Not the cup that he had spoken of and given to his disciples to drink in the intense and exciting atmosphere of the Last Supper before in verse 23 about an hour ago. Now it's the cup of God's wrath. The cup that Jesus had spoken of in chapter 10 verse 38. The cup that he will drink at the cross in order that God's people will not drink it. He drank God's wrath. So that you do not have to experience it. He felt the full weight of God's wrath. So that you will never experience it. And it is such a terrible thing for Jesus. That he breaks down physically under the pressure. Throws himself onto the ground. And prays in just a few moments. He recoils at the thought of it. And Mark tells us. He is greatly distressed. He is troubled. He is very sorrowful. Notice fourth, what Jesus did and resolved. Look in verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus now goes to pray in verse 35, as he said he came there to do in verse 32. Those familiar, familiar with Mark's gospel will know that there are three times Jesus prays in this gospel, and each one is a decision point. At each one, there is a juncture where he is forced to decide, will I go the way of my Father, or will I choose another path? The first one comes very early in the gospel, in chapter 1. The end point of the chapter, the question is before Jesus, will he be a miracle worker that everyone will seek out, one that everyone will like, doing wondrous things? But then we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And after that prayer, when his disciples come and say, everybody's looking for you, they want some of your ministry, this is great. We're going to have a following. We're going to have people. We're going to have money. For once, we're going to be in charge. Jesus says, we're going to go out into the towns. I've come to preach. I've been come to tell the people that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The second comes in chapter 6. Would he be a savior only for the Jews? Or would he be one for the Gentiles as well? And then in chapter 6, verse 46, we see... And after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain and prayed. And after that prayer, he went on to confront the religious leader and their commandments and their false faith while also taking the gospel to the Gentiles. People like the Syrophoenician woman who seemed too far gone. And the third is here in our text today. Would he follow God or would he go back? Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed. If it were possible that the hour might pass from him. Friends, Jesus is asking if there is any other way. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, even this. And yet notice his boldness. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Careful readers begin to ask themselves, what is happening here? Because it's so stunning and unexpected. Jesus has been in charge of himself... Calm and collected throughout the entirety of the gospel from Caesarea Philippi to the Last Supper. Jesus said that he had every intention to die. He knew what he was doing, he knew where he was going. He kept telling people that it's the way of the cross. And it seems now that he's having second thoughts, all of a sudden it seems that he might be afraid to die. Nothing could be further from the truth in Jesus' life. If he feared dying, he would not have confronted the religious establishment as boldly as he did in chapters 11 and 12. If he feared dying, he would have never ever come to Jerusalem, he knew that they hated him before he ever came. If he feared dying, he certainly wouldn't have gone to Gethsemane. If Jesus feared dying, he wouldn't have predicted his cross and crucifixion multiple times throughout the gospel. Jesus prays as he does, because he is facing the reality that in just a few hours, he will bear up under the full weight of humanity's sin in his body, and he will suffer something that he has never known. Complete abandonment and estrangement from his father. One who had perfect fellowship with God. Will be entirely cut off for us. And with that prospect before him. Jesus prays to the father. Which gives passages like this so much more meaning. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the cross. Friends, when we think of our sin lightly, not a big deal, not a big sin. Don't really need to deal with that one. Look to the sufferings of Christ and see how big a deal All of your sins are, all of my sins are, all of our sins are the sins that led him to the end of his life like this, to where he died on our behalf and became sin. And this is why he collapsed to the ground and he prayed, verse 36, Abba, Father, in a reverential address, like a child crying out, Father, help me now. Jesus prays, if there's any other way, Nevertheless, not what I will, but you, what you will. She's he's facing this cup of wrath, a cup that Jeremiah speaks about, therefore, this is what the Lord of the army says concerning the prophets. I am about to feed them wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink, for from the prophets of Jerusalem ungodliness is spread throughout the land. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of the wine, Of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. Wake yourself. Wake yourself up. Stand up, Jerusalem. You have to drink the cup of his fury from the Lord's hand. You have drunk the goblet to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. And here we see Jesus beginning to drink that cup. And he drank damnation to the dregs, as Spurgeon said. He took it all for us. His request from the uh, Father comes from this awareness that He's about to bear wrath for you. Fellow believers, when was the last time that we stopped not to just consider the love of God, but the wrath that the Son of God bore for us? We don't want to think about it. And praise God, we never will in some, a meaningful sense. But to pause and to think What he experienced for us. And if your mind is like mine, when I'm reading passages like Isaiah 53, it's almost like there's this numbness. I I can't even take it in what it's really saying to me about the Savior. When it's being explained to me and I read about it in books like the cross of Christ or the death of death or whatever it might be, you almost can't even fathom it. Praise God. But to pause and to think, this is what the Son of God was doing. This is the pressure that he felt. And he felt it for you. He felt it for you. Oh, a great mercy of our father. That he would so love us when we have been so unlovable and so sinful. So wretched. We have complained and we have groaned, We have griped and we've been bitter. But we have sinned in egregious ways and we all know it if we're honest. We have done things that we wouldn't tell our best of friends because we are ashamed, and he knows it all. And Jesus went, and he became a curse for us. The next time you sin against another sinner, remind yourself, Jesus died for me, broken sinner that I am. When you lash out, husband, against your wife, he, she is somebody Jesus died for. Hus- wife, the same for her husband. Children to parents. Parents to children. Friend to other friend. Members to other members. Sinners for whom Christ died and suffered. His request comes because he is really aware. Jesus isn't losing his mind. He's absolutely aware of what's taking place. And he is aware in that moment that it is going to be painful. But here he resolves to go. His words are a beautiful example of genuine honesty in prayer. Are you honest in your prayers to the Father? Not praying prayers that sound good, but honest in your prayers. Help my unbelief. I don't believe. I don't think you will. Help my unbelief. Answer this prayer, but even if not, yet not what I will, but what you will, Father. Friends, Jesus' prayer teaches us that it is not necessarily wrong to ask for God to do something that He doesn't intend to do so long as our hearts are actually prepared to receive the Father's good providence. And I know that there are prayers that you've prayed and you do not like the prayer of the the providence that the Lord has given you. But the Lord is merciful and sustaining us in those moments carrying us when we would buckle completely underneath it he is both serving us jesus is serving us here but he is also leaving us an example coming to the father with honest prayer i'm going to suggest to you one of the reasons we all don't pray more is because we don't think that we can be honest with the father in prayer we think that our prayer needs to sound a certain way and i'm here to tell you dispel that entirely be someone who goes to the Father with reckless abandonment in prayer. Help me, sustain me, hear this prayer, tune my heart to believe what I don't, to act as I want, to love what I don't, so that I might be more like Christ. Jesus' submission to the Father's will are the words of one who prays with a profound conviction that the Father always knows what's best. Do your prayers. Manifest that you believe that the Father's will is always what's best for you. That's the best job that you could be in right now because that's the one the Lord has you in. And that is the best set of circumstances you could have in your life right now because they are the ones the Lord has given to you. And that is the right set of financial dealings that you have because they are the ones that the Lord has entrusted to you. And though you might wish that they were something else, They are what the Lord has given to you. And your Father always knows what's best, exactly what you need to get you exactly where He is getting you to conform you to the image of Christ. In His good timing, may His will be done. Jesus prayed to prepare. I say that as we think of prayer. When I think of prayer, I pray because I'm desperate and I'm reacting. Jesus prayed to prepare for Calvary. Brothers and sisters, are we praying to prepare? That is something I'm faced with every single week. Wake up on Sunday morning. I know I'm behind. The clock is ticking. It's almost 10 a.m. Am I going to stop, read my Bible, and pray every single week? That's one way you can pray for your pastor. Will I pray to prepare or will I, because I fear man, be more focused on what I'm going to say when I get up here? Every week, that's a battle in my life. Every week, you have those same temptations. Will I pray? to prepare. Father, I know this is going to be a hard week with the, uh, in, at work. I know this is going to be a hard week with the kids. I know this is going to be a hard week of loneliness. I know this is going to be another week where I don't get the news that I want. I know this is the annual reminder that so and so died. I know that this is a reminder that people are still not here with us, that COVID is still present, that I haven't gotten the job that I wanted or the raise that I wanted. Father, help me get ready for that because I don't want the providence that you have right now for my life. Prepare my heart. Jesus, he paused and prepared by prayer. Jesus prays. And in the context of Mark's gospel, we see how God answers that prayer. Betrayal, arrest, abandonment, denial, beatings, trials, mockery, crucifixion, death. Notice fifth, what Peter, James, and John did. Look at verse 37. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went out and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus invites them to remain and watch, which immediately makes us think of chapter 13, where he's constantly saying, Watch, be ready. Watch, prepare. The day is coming. Here it is. And Jesus signals it to them. You would think that the disciples would not be so brick-headed at this point in the narrative. Jesus says, Watch. Here we are. We're watching. Something's about to happen. Jesus, merciful that he is. He's patient with the disciples as he's patient with us. They're supposed to be on guard and stay awake, and they're not. Jesus is about to struggle with the oncoming judgment of God and once more encourages them to do so by praying themselves. But they fall asleep. They can't make it through. Jesus' agony only had to be greatly increased by the sleeping of the disciples. Can you imagine how disappointing that had to be? I called you out. I have personally trained you. I've taken care of you. I'm giving my life for you. You can't watch and pray for one hour. You can't stay awake even now. But as John Stott said, they're sleeping as a reminder to us that they cannot enter into the fathomless mystery of his suffering. This is a path that Jesus has to walk all alone. Jesus' comment About temptation reveals what is actually taking place as he's dying. There is a spiritual battle that is taking place. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. But the disciples are, verse 38, dominated by their own flesh. Their eyes are very weary, they did not know what to answer him. Jesus brings out the relationship between present circumstances and spiritual warfare here. Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Not pray that I don't enter into temptation, but pray that you don't enter into temptation, that you don't fall away, that you don't give up, that you don't turn away, that you don't abandon me, that you don't deny me. Brothers and sisters, that is what we must pray. Father, keep me in the evil day. Brothers and sisters, praise God he has sent his spirit to us because the only reason you woke up a Christian today is because the spirit of God is keeping you or you would cease to be a Christian before you laid your head on your pillow tonight. God is sustaining you by his grace. Pray that he may keep you. And lest you think I'm too far down the path of Christian discipleship that it can never happen to me, go read the reports of Ravi Zacharias. May we not be so arrogant. Ravi's a greater preacher than I'll ever be. And he had done more than we will ever have done, most of us in this room. And we see the tragedy of his life and the horror of abuse in his ministry. There's no way Judas went to that supper thinking, I'm going to die an unbeliever. Brothers and sisters, ask God, reveal the depths of this wicked heart and keep me so that I don't turn away a warning about falling into temptation because of the prayerlessness that actually plays out in arrest. The disciples fall on the ground and they are unprepared for the judgment to unfold because they have not prayed. They're unprepared because they have not prayed. Their sleepy, prayerless disciples flee into the night, cowards that they are, abandoning Jesus. While Jesus stands strong in the face of temptation, he doesn't flinch. At all in the midst of this moment. Jesus is not afraid of what's going to happen to him in this moment. He knows what is before him. He wasn't asking for them to pray for him. He's asking them to pray for themselves. And then there's the crescendo of this passage. The time has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed. My betrayer is near. Jesus instructs them to rise from their slumber. His prayer has steeled his resolve. And even though they thought their plot was secretive, we see once again that Jesus is not caught off guard. Point two, the shepherd is betrayed and the sheep flee. The shepherd is betrayed and the sheep flee. Notice six, or this is point one of the second point. Verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Mark ties together Jesus' Gethsemane prayer and his arrest with this phrase here. While he was still speaking, your subject heading doesn't help you there. While he's speaking, they come into the garden. Now all those responsible for the death of Jesus throughout Mark's gospel are gathered together. There's Judas. There's the crowds. There's the chief priests. There's the scribes. There are the elders. All of people who've been conspiring behind the scenes finally come out, cowards that they are, in absolute darkness when no one else, uh, else is around. Despite their plot being secret, we see Jesus is not caught off guard. The drama of the arrest escalates as these forces arrayed against Jesus. And we see here this violence in their behalf. They come with swords and clubs. Mark wants you to see that, so he says it twice. Jesus is there, peaceful, calm, resolved. They come terrified. Swords, clubs, darkness of night, a whole posse of people, and Jesus stands alone. Judas is out in the front of this mob, and it reminds us, once again, of the failures of taking not taking advantage of spiritual privileges. Brothers, each and every week that you get to hear the gospel preached is God's mercy to you. This is God's demonstration that he loves you, bringing you together with people to hear his word preached, to sing songs about his Christ. For those of you he's placed in this church as members, one of God's mercies to you is that he has placed you among the people of God and given you accountability. You are not alone. No matter how alone you feel in your life, if you are a member of this church, no matter what circumstances that you have that are different than other people's, you are not alone. There are 98 other people who are a part of your family by faith in Christ, who love you and care about you and pray for you and long to serve you. We have never been as alone as our Lord Jesus. Here Judas comes. He had spent all of this time with Jesus. He'd heard him teach. He'd seen the miracles he'd served beside him. But notice how he betrays him. Something else that's mentioned twice because Mark wants us to see it. With a kiss. Judas greets Jesus by calling him something wrong. Merely rabbi. And then he kisses him. A chilling depiction. A sign of love transformed into something evil, something that is supposed to indicate affection, used in a horrible and terrible way, something that should communicate camaraderie, brotherhood, fellowship, solidarity, used against Jesus to betray him into the hands of sinners. But at the very moment when one might expect Jesus to just... Run away and flee as an unarmed victim. Mark, once again, portrays Jesus in absolute control. And we see the voluntary nature of his sufferings. Jesus' words draw attention to the stark difference between his integrity and their lack of integrity. They've come out now in a way that they haven't in the temple in front of other people. But Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is telling them, this has been ordained since the foundation of the world. And I will fulfill the plan in this moment. Jesus rebukes the arrest of the mob. But notice once again how he subtly rebukes his disciples. Judas, one of the twelve, and did you notice what he called Peter earlier? Peter, Simon, the name that he had before he was called Peter. Not very much of a rock now, is he? Simon, are you sleeping? Simon, are you a coward? The answer for these people who come out against Jesus is one of betrayal because they've done it without the permission of God. Notice seventh, what the disciples did. Look at verse 50. And They all left him and fled. The betrayal of the shepherd is accompanied by the scattering of the sheep. Mark simply states that they all left him. None of the twelve sticks with him. None of the crowds. None of the people who wanted to see him in ministry. Their sleepishness in the garden results in their ultimate denial of Jesus. When all hope appears to be lost, the disciples abandon Jesus, fleeing into the darkness. Yet, before we are too critical of the disciples, brothers, I think this is an appropriate point, brothers and sisters, to see ourselves in the narrative, we would have all done the same thing. In fact, we regularly do. When we cower in front of opportunities that we have to speak on behalf of Jesus because we're afraid of what people will think. When we refuse to pursue holiness in our lives because the pleasures of this world are more enticing. When we indulge in the appetites of this world because what we really care about is ourself. Here is Jesus, not doing what our modern age tells us to do. Be yourself and preserve yourself. Jesus saying what it means in this moment to be one who is obedient to the Father is to give up of my own rights for the sake of other people, to serve them when everybody else would abandon me and deny me. Notice 8, what the young man did in verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark concludes the scene of mob violence with a bizarre episode describing this unnamed man fleeing into the night completely naked with no clothes on. The event has been interpreted in all kinds of different ways, but it seems what, what Mark actually wants us to see is that this young man would rather flee in shame than be associated with the one who's about to die. He would rather flee in shame And preserve himself than be associated with the one who's being taken away a prisoner. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if that sometimes characterizes our own lives. Would we rather preserve ourselves than identify with the Savior? And make sure that we are taken care of. Because we do not believe that God will actually take care of us. Just a few points of application as we close. First, I think this passage helps us see that we are to pray to prepare. You can pray in preparation for each day, but you can pray in preparation for your services of corporate worship. You can pray in preparation for evangelism. Something I was encouraged to do this week that I was reminded that I haven't done recently is to go praying with another person, praying out loud in the borough, asking that God would prepare me and others for opportunities. That's something that you can do. Pray to prepare in your life. Pray to prepare for the hard conversations that you need to have with other people when you need to correct them or rebuke them or to admonish them. Pray to prepare for those difficult moments when you know that you will be challenged and pushed to the brink. Pray to prepare for each day of work when you know that you have an obstinate or difficult employer or when you are scared. Pray to prepare when you are afraid of the circumstances around us, asking God to prepare your heart because you know that you will go into this world thinking primarily of yourself. Pray to prepare. I think that's one of the applications that we can take away here that our Savior. Not only does something for us, but models for us what we are to do. Pray to prepare because every day is a spiritual battle. Second, I think this is a moment of self-examination. Brothers and sisters, a healthy exercise in our lives is to ask other people to get involved. Before it becomes something like this. And to say, where am I turning away from Jesus? Where am I denying Jesus or betraying Jesus or abandoning Jesus? Where am I lacking in my resolve and commitment to follow Jesus so that in the evil day I do not turn away? And I think the reason that God gives us church membership, one above all things, is because we were not meant to do that alone and because we cannot do that alone apart from the brothers and sisters he has given to us here in the context of this church. If you're not a member of the church, we would invite you to join the church. We'd love for you to join the church. You can join this church. Brothers and sisters, examine ourselves. Because Judas did not think that he was going to lose his soul. Peter, James, and John did not think that they were going to flee in that moment. The other nine certainly did not think that they were going to betray Jesus. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they lack complete awareness in their own lives. And I want to submit to each of us that perhaps you lack complete awareness in your life. You think you understand your circumstances better than anybody else. But time and time again, the Bible says you do not understand your circumstances. Because if you did, you would not do the things that you do. So God gives you other people. And if you have nobody who can speak honestly to you, first, I'm sorry for that. And part of that is probably your own fault. Second, we would love to help you to begin to build real friendships. And if you are afraid of what people will think of you, think again. Because when you start to get to know other people in this church, you will know that there are no righteous people. Apart from faith in Christ, that is. There are no people making it on their own. Everybody here, if people knew everything about them in their life, would be completely isolated and alone. But by God's grace, he gives us other people to bear with us and not treat us as our sins deserve. Brothers and sisters, I think we could talk about Gethsemane for hours, and I genuinely mean that. This is a somber text. What do we say when we see what it cost our Savior? Except to pause and to give thanks and to see the great love with which the Father has loved us that the eternal Son of God would on this night go to another garden for us and obey where the first Adam disobeyed and be resolved even at the cost of comfort and pleasure to himself to be obedient to the Father's will, to earn for us what we could never earn for ourselves. Thanks be to God. Unbeliever, come to Christ. We would love to share the mercy of the Savior with you. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we pray that you would help us in some small measure understand the mysteries of Gethsemane that we might plumb ever deeper into the mysteries of this moment and give thanks regularly for our Savior who felt deep anguish, sadness, brokenness, and yet resolved to be obedient for us. Thank you, Father. Father, we pray that we would think of this moment and be reminded of where it leads, Jesus straight to the cross, where he died for us. And may we be quick to give you praise, thanking you for your merciful and gracious work. Amen.